brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Welcome to this week's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy. And we will be joined a little bit later in the podcast by UConn coach Jim Penders. Excited to talk to him about the Huskies. But first, I've got to let you know that the Baseball America College Podcast is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsodo.com slash national database. All right, Joe, we have made it to Thanksgiving week here. I don't know when, uh, when the good folks are listening, maybe on their way uh to a thanksgiving maybe on their walk around the house uh just or around the the block you know getting ready uh for a home thanksgiving you know whatever you've got going on uh this year it uh there's there's still a lot to be thankful for in an unusual year an unprecedented year in so many ways and uh, we're going to talk about some of the reasons for college baseball and college baseball fans to be thankful a little bit later. But Joe, it's uh, you know we we have made it uh, all the way here to uh, to the 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 Thanksgiving holiday. Indeed, we have, and my Thanksgiving meal has uh, already already put it down. Did a little a little bit different this year. Did a little bit early. Uh, everything is a little bit different, of course, this year. You know, holidays have been. Uh, you know, we're all doing holidays a little bit differently, even if we're, we're kind of going about it in a, in a more traditional way. I think it, things have, have changed a little bit. And certainly that has been the case here. So an early Thanksgiving. Um, so yesterday there was the appropriate amount of uh, food eaten and the lethargy to come after it and just kind of sitting around while everyone falls asleep on the couch and, you know, kind of comes in and out of, of consciousness. And um, But we're, we're all spry and back at it again today. So, um, but I, I agree with your sentiment, a lot to be thankful for we will get into a lot of that later but but certainly thankful just generally to um our listeners um that have kind of stuck with us even though the college baseball season was was canceled oh so abruptly we you know um really had that taken away from us when we were just getting started and so the listeners who have, who have stuck with us through all of that through some of the nonsense that we did to, to get through those times and certainly there was also a lot of not nonsense we also did a lot of really cool fun stuff so i hope you were here for all of it 
certainly you can go back and listen to it if you you haven't listened to all that stuff we put out during the extended off season. So thankful that, that you guys did that. Thankful to have been able to continue doing the podcast during that time. I know it helped me cope with um, losing the season. And that's just a tough thing when you love college baseball as much as, as Teddy and I do. Um, it also helps, you know, give me some normalcy in life during a time when there wasn't a ton of that. So um, I know this is a little more of a serious note that I usually strike when I come in with these introductions. I usually have some, speaking of nonsense, I usually have some nonsense to spew, but but I've, I've truly found myself being really thankful for um, th this platform and being able to do this. And even in a year when we just didn't have as much college baseball as we wanted to end up having, still being able to, to talk college baseball with all of you. Um, it's been a great joy. Looking forward to continuing to do it. And now that we are just about to be past the Thanksgiving holiday as we record this, we are really barreling toward a 2021 season. We still don't know what it's going to look like. We still don't know how it's going to feel. However, a lot of confidence we are going to have college baseball back in our lives, and that is a wonderful, wonderful thing to be thankful for. Absolutely. Definitely thankful, uh, you know, for all of the listeners and for just the opportunity that we have to, to talk college baseball and to write about college baseball, uh, you know, throughout a, a year in which there, there wasn't a whole lot of college baseball to play. Um, Thankful that you guys have, uh, you know, like Joe said, stuck with us through some silliness, um, through some some technical stuff. You know, as we get used to to broadcasting from home, I mentioned that uh, as my dog tries to take apart a cardboard box next to me. So if you hear some things in this week's podcast, you know, uh, we're trying here. <laughs> but we we really appreciate everyone who who has listened, who continues to listen, and uh, we would be especially grateful if you have not subscribed to the, the podcast, if you do so, on your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, wherever you get your podcasts, remember you can find us and subscribe, rate, review. We greatly, greatly appreciate all of it. Um, we have talked some news here at the top of the show the last few weeks before we started recording. Joe and I were just kind of mentioning that there's not as much news to be had this week in the college baseball world. There is still a little bit. Uh, the NCAA, again, extended the recruiting dead period. Uh, that now is going until April 15 of 2021. I know I talked to a lot of coaches that had been hopeful that they would be able to get out sooner than that uh, in the 2021, you know, once the calendar flipped to 2021, um, college baseball in general now would be in a dead period um, for the next couple months, or at least in a quiet period, not all of it's a dead period, for the next couple months. So there's only so much different now, obviously visits still not being able to take place, but no one would have been able to go out um, for a few months anyway but they had been hopeful that maybe they would be able to get out a little bit earlier uh to kind of make up some of that time and instead they're now going to be getting out later than usual uh and again this has been extended several times already so you know remains april 15 is the now the target date to resume recruiting activities but i guess we'll see and then the other piece of news here is that Maryland Eastern Shore last week became the second team to announce that they will not be playing uh, 
sprint sports this year. Uh, they join Bethune Cookman. Both of those schools are in the MEAC. And, you know, it's uh, we'll see who, who else opts out if other schools opt out. But for now, uh, those two MEAC schools are, are the first two to say that there will not be spring sports uh, for them this year. So Joe, either of those, uh, those items strike you. Both in different ways. I, I will leave the big picture, what the recruiting dead period extension kind of means recruiting wise to you as someone who follows the recruiting a lot more closely than I do. I don't feel like I'm in a position to really make any sort of sweeping judgments on that. Just beyond the fact that, again, this is a situation where you can understand why this is continuing, at least in the abstract, you can understand why this is in place, but it, you feel for those kids that are just um, having op- having fewer opportunities. They're, they're, the kids who, are, who would be enrolling in college the next few years aren't that are now in high school are not really having the same level of opportunity as those who came before them and presumably those who will come in, in years after. So that's always just kind of a bummer. There were a lot of, a lot of kids who this would have been a make or break time for them and they're just not getting the same opportunities in the recruiting process as they would otherwise. So obviously that's, that's a little bit of a, of a bummer there. the other part that's interesting about that to me is that given that it has been extended through what we presume will be the start of college baseball season is a little bit of a different dynamic and correct me if I'm wrong, but just, you know, uh, that's a little bit different than what it normally is where the baseball season and recruiting are usually running pretty heavily concurrently to where one of the things that I did not know when I first started really getting into college baseball was I did not understand at first that while the college baseball season is going on, recruiting is, is such you know, you, you understand the importance of it, but I did not know when I first got into college baseball that that also means that there are times where a certain coach might not be in the dugout because he's out recruiting. And not, not every program does it that way. Um, it's not every, every game. It's not every weekend necessarily, but um, there's usually someone very focused on recruiting as well as what's going on on the field. And those two things are not, because of the dead period, not going to be running together quite in the same way that they normally do. And that's just going to be a different dynamic. I think um, not that it, not that it has to, not that we, we will be able to see the effect of it necessarily, but it will be a different dynamic for some of those coaches who are used to managing, not just the product on the field right in front of them, but also managing a recruiting board at the exact same time. So that I think that's just going to be for staffs who are um, a little more aggressive with having guys out and uh, in, in doing the visits during the season uh, are just not going to be able to do that to that same level. And it's going to be a little bit of a different dynamic for those staffs anyway. Yeah. And to an extent, those staffs have, I mean, actually not to an extent, those staffs have already been dealing with a similar dynamic this fall. Um, there's typically, you know, a recruiting period in the fall that's particularly important for junior college players, but not unimportant for high school players. Um, you know, obviously the uh, the big perfect game tournament in Jupiter uh, annually is held in the fall, and that's a, a huge event for for everyone in the amateur baseball world. Um, but this year, coaches didn't have recruiting; they didn't, they weren't going anywhere, they weren't hosting any recruits on campus. I mean, there was virtual stuff happening; there were live streams to be watched, you know, FaceTimes to be done, and everything. But there wasn't the 
the in-person recruiting. And that gave everyone much more of an opportunity to work with their, their current team. And that's something that I think a lot of them, well, I know a lot of them that told me enjoyed that they didn't have to, to worry about, you know, running around to, you know, all these tournaments go, going away every weekend. They didn't have to worry about, you know, hosting a variety of recruiting weekends throughout the fall, whether official visits, unofficial visits, making sure that everyone, you know, got where they were supposed to be going, that, you know, they're, you know, that they were, they all had, you know, their, their football tickets and that they were, you know, coming through the office at the right time so that they could talk to people and baseball facility and, and all the rest of that. So that's now, like you said, Joe, going to be eliminated from the spring in the new recruiting calendar. I think that there have been the last couple of years, last year, last two years, whatever, uh, like a, a two week, you could start the season without having to worry about recruiting, but now uh, it certainly looks like there'll be more time before that, that gets, you know, thrown onto to coaches plates as well. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how this all shakes out, you know, how this affects 2021 high school seniors and junior college players, obviously, upfront the most the the younger players coaches have pretty consistently told me that they're not as concerned about that they'll come back to them and you know be able to recruit them like normal maybe it'll be more like they did 10 years ago like a timeline wise as opposed to what they are doing now uh you know just in terms of of when those players would be seeing things and committing to to schools and and the like but it will they still have time. These junior college players and any uncommitted high school seniors, they're running out of time rapidly to, uh, to see things, but you know, that we'll, uh, we'll, we'll just have to wait and, and see what effects, uh, you know, come to those players and, and to the programs that, that are involved in, in recruiting those players. So the other thing with, with Maryland Eastern shore is that I think it just, speaks to how um how tenuous the the MEAC situation is and just on a number of different fronts right because we've talked about in the past um that the the conference realignment that's coming to the MEAC that is going to force them to take a hard look at if they're going to continue forward like who they who they are going to add um, because their numbers just for those I guess who are uninitiated there they've got a number of teams that are moving to other conferences that is taking their membership numbers down to right at the number or slightly below the number of what you have to have in order to be an automatic bid conference in division one. And so they have to make decisions about what they're going to do as far as expansion goes. And obviously Bethune Cookman and Maryland Eastern shore electing not to play in the 21 season doesn't directly affect that because that would still give the MEAC six members. However, it's just another thing the MEAC is kind of having to deal with. So in the short term, that means if the MEAC is going to try to do a, a, a mostly conference-only schedule, A, that does take a couple of teams away from that. So now you're looking at, okay, do we play everyone in the conference twice? Do we just play a really small number of games and that's our entire season? It, it just makes things a little bit more difficult, especially with 
Maryland Eastern Shore, as, as you pointed out to me when we talked about this offline, is, is a pretty centrally located program for the MEAC. Bethune-Cookman is one thing, is as far south as it is, but Maryland Eastern Shore is an easy trip for a lot of those programs. And so now you've taken one of those relatively easy trips, uh, both from a cost and a COVID safety standpoint, off of the table for the MEAC. And that's just going to make things a little more complicated. But in the longer term, it's just and maybe it's maybe it's a small crack, but it is just another crack in kind of the um, the facade of of the MEAC and and what they're trying to do here, where it's just like a little bit more uncertainty. Where if you're a, a program that is looking to be involved in the MEAC, whether as an affiliate member for baseball or other sports, or as a full member, you know it's another thing you'll have to consider that you know that that, that they weren't able to take the field or did not take the field in twenty the twenty twenty one academic year. And it's certainly the last thing I think the MEAC needs is just more uncertainty about its place in the Division I landscape moving forward at a time when it's trying to sell itself as, no, we're a healthy league that has a bright future and, and we have every intention of trying to continue on and compete for championships, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is, while the, the, the mostly two separate things, the, the um, realignment that the MEAC is suffering through and also... Bethune-Cookman and Maryland Eastern Shore deciding not to play. Obviously, the pandemic has exacerbated those problems, but they're really two separate issues, but they're combining to make it to where uh, life in the MEAC trying to find a path forward is becoming increasingly difficult by the day. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be interesting to see how the MEAC plans uh, for this spring, what, what those exactly look like. Uh, we're a long time away from getting anything definitive in terms of schedule and the like. As we've mentioned before, there's been no guidance to this point about when a season can begin and all the rest of that. But uh, something to watch. And, you know, just as as teams try and, and sort things out um, schedule wise, you know, we'll see where where things like that go but yeah the long-term future of the MEAC continues to be um cloudy I guess um it's uh you know you can you can read into tea leaves however you want to read into them but you know I can't remember what school it was now but I saw HBCU game day which does a great job covering um all the HBCU leagues but the MEAC among them um had reported that one of the boards of trustees was, you know, on their agenda, they were like openly talking about conference affiliation because that's kind of a thing that you just have to talk about in the MEAC. That's not the first time I saw it, um, you know, for one of those schools because there is so much uncertainty around uh, the league right now. So, yeah, I mean, it would, in terms of just trying to present a, you know, unified front just to, to show that, you know, the, the conference is, is a viable, uh, thriving place moving forward. It, uh, it would behoove them to, to pull off, a, you know, a spring season, but obviously there are a lot of factors involved in that. And so we'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll continue to track that, uh, as we get closer to the season. All right, so I mentioned earlier that we're going to be joined today by UConn coach Jim Penders. He has, you know, a very interesting baseball story, just a, a ton of, 
of tradition there at UConn, uh, you know, for him. He, he's helped UConn become one of the most consistent programs in the Northeast over the years. UConn is, uh, you know, now moving into the Big East for the 2021 season. Uh, this is their first year back in the conference after several years in the American. So that's a reason for excitement around the program, as is the long-awaited ballpark, uh, which was supposed to open this spring. Uh, it will instead debut for the public. You know, this coming spring, they didn't get any home games in uh, before the season was canceled, but they've been able to use it all fall. And, you know, there's, um, you know, be, being able to see videos and pictures of UConn practicing in their new ballpark has been really cool to see. I know how long, you know, they've worked for it, how long Jim Penders has worked for it and, and what that can mean for the program. So uh, an exciting time for the Huskies and plenty of stuff for us to get into with, uh, with Jim Penders. So let's do that uh, right now. Today on the Baseball America College podcast, we're excited to be joined by UConn coach Jim Penders. Coach, uh, it's it's been an interesting time th this year, an interesting year. We actually saw you in Arizona on opening weekend as a part of the MLB4 tournament. That feels like it was a <laughs> lifetime ago now. Um, but back then, uh, there were a lot of reasons to be excited about the team. And, uh, you know, you got off to a, a pretty good start to, to the season. So, you know, just when you think back on all of that, um, what did you learn about the, the Huskies this spring? Well, I, I, uh, it does seem like forever ago right now, but, um, that was, it ended on a high note, uh, with a, with a W after not playing so well out in Arizona. But, um, what I learned in the, you know, in the, in the few weeks that we were together, uh, competing was that, you know, we, what's crazy is that our last two games played were probably our sloppiest games and ugliest games against Presbyterian and against university of Hartford. And yet we found a way to win them. And that's a really good place to be as the head coach um, when you can kind of you can address process and still win, you know, and the fact that we were winning ugly uh, usually bodes well, you know, for later in the season as things come together and we were playing more regularly and uh, getting in some kind of rhythm. But, um, you know, we had a bonafide you know, a bonafide ace and Nick Krauth that really established himself who's now at the Texas Rangers organization is off to a great start with them. Um, so there was a lot of good building, you know, building blocks, Reggie Crawford, our freshman slugger and two way guy was off to a, an awesome start. We still had some things to work out in the infield, especially. Um, but, uh, I liked where we were, where we were heading, um, and, uh, was excited. You know, I think we were, we were really looking forward to getting on our spring spring break trip trip to uh, to start in Richmond there and and then it all it all blew up. But I did like the direction we were heading, even though uh, we weren't playing great baseball. We were able to win, and that's a good sign of a of a team uh, that can build toward a championship. You mentioned Nick Kraut, um, you know, having departed, and I'm kind of curious about how the, the pitching staff shakes out for you. Uh, just generally speaking, you know, you've got a couple guys back to Simeon, Colby Dunlop that have started some games for you. I'm sure there's others in the mix there. How do you, how did you look at the, the pitching this fall and um, kind of where are you at with the competition to get on the mound come spring, whether in the, the starting role or just generally speaking? Yeah, I'd, I'd say in general, you know, we're, we're building more toward, more from the back end, a lot, 
a la the the Rays, I think, you know, kind of taking a, a page from their book, the MLB level. And most of these kids are used to, I mean, you don't see CGs next to any of these high school kids' names anymore. So it's, it, you know, they, they're used, they're used to throwing two and three innings at a, uh, at a time. And, you know, I, I think that's kind of where the game is heading. Uh, I'm not exactly excited about that possibility, but we've been very, um, effective and coach McDonald is one of the best in the country has been very effective about building from backwards to, you know, the back of the game to the front. And so we're very happy with what we have shaping up toward the back, but the guys that, you know, that you mentioned, uh, Joe Simeone, uh, Colby Dunlop, Patrick Gallagher was a guy who was emerging as a young, as a freshman last year, he had his bumps this fall but uh, he has the stuff to compete on the weekends in a starting role. The guy that we didn't have last year who has vaulted himself to the top of the heap uh, with regard to starting on Friday nights, he's our leading candidate. Uh, that's Ben Kasparius, uh, who is a Connecticut native, former Gatorade player of the year in Connecticut at Staples High School and a state champion uh, who spent his first two years at North Carolina and and played in Omaha as a freshman for, for the Tar Heels. We're, we're very uh, fortunate to have him, and he was clicking on all cylinders this fall, uh, garnered a lot of attention from, uh, from Major League Baseball and the scouting community. So I'm excited about those guys. I'm also excited about Kenny House, who's returning for his second senior year now due to COVID. Uh, he was just about unhittable and unbelievable with his uh, – uh, ability to compete um, in, in the fall, uh, especially. Uh, he's always been a guy who doesn't have any fear when he takes them on. And he, he really opened our eyes as a guy that we can really, really count on, along with Caleb Worcester. Caleb's a guy who can close games left-handed, but um, wants to be uh, prepared as a starter. And who are we to say that that might not be the best uh decision for for us as a team not just for him as a prospect but for us as a team I, I think it's easier to prepare him as a starter and then taper him back down if we don't find a guy who can lock it down in the ninth inning Caleb's capable of doing that very well so um, we're, we're going ahead with a starters plan for him uh, too so a lot, a lot of nice pieces you know there's a lot of guys I haven't mentioned um, but uh, maybe we'll get to, but we're, we're excited. We've always built our, our best teams around a, a good pitching staff. And I think we have the makings of one for 21. Yeah. I mean, the, you mentioned how good your pitching has been historically, but you've also been, I think, a, a, a very good, you know, offensive team as well. A lot of returning guys there, as you look at the, the offensive group, uh, you know, with Crawford back and, and the Fedco, uh, Fedco's, you know, who do you look to that, that is, you know, taking steps forward offensively? Well, I was really happy with Christian and Kyler Fedco. I mean, Kyler might've been our best all around player in the fall. I don't think might, he probably was, or, uh, he certainly was our best all around offensive player and defensive position player in, in the fall. He was just outstanding in the outfield. Um, and just hit to all fields, used the entire field. The first time that we really saw him do that on a consistent basis, battled with two strikes. Uh, Christian is a guy who just, when the lights are on, that guy finds a different gear. He's a clutch performer. Uh, nobody enjoys being on a team or part of a good team than, than Christian Fedco does. He's never had a bad day. And in his, uh, this will be his fourth year with us. I've never seen him have a bad day. And he's kind of our heartbeat 
um, not just offensively, but in the clubhouse to a large extent. So I'm excited about the Fedco brothers. Uh, Reggie Crawford, you know, he's been trying, we've been working with him on actually developing a little bit more power. And I think he had struggled with that a bit in the summer um, for Westfield, but he, and he, he continued to struggle a bit, um, finding a groove and consistency this fall, but he always has the ability to go to that left center gap. So if it's, if it gets to a point where we're just, you know, we're spinning our wheels a little bit, trying to get him to, to pull the ball and, and hit it 400 instead of, you know, 300 on a line, he can get back just like we'd be preparing Caleb for a starting role. Reggie can get back to being that gap to gap guy pretty quickly. Um, and it was confident in his ability to adjust, but he's, he's a hitter. I mean, he knows how to hit. He has an advanced approach and uh, has been sacrificing some of the numbers, I think, to try to find another gear um, with the, with that power. Pat Winkle's another guy we expect to have back in our lineup in the middle of it. Um, just getting off of Tommy John. He's, he's going to be 12 months out from that in December, he's 11 months out right now. And he's not a hundred percent yet, but he, he doesn't have to be. So he, he did his uh, rehab incredibly diligently um, and uh, was dedicated to it. We expect him to be a big part of our offense and his brother, Chris, um, while he's had his struggles in our uniform in the batter's box, he's always been a great leader. And I think he started to find some new consistency toward the end of our fall that was exciting to all of us um, and has become a very good defender in center field too. I mean, we've got a couple, we have three legitimate center fielders, I think, and in, in, uh, Chris Winkle, Kyler Fedko, and in a newcomer, T.C. Simmons, who's another uh, product of a junior college in California who uh, defended extremely well uh, this fall. So some nice pieces. Um, and uh, you know, I didn't mention Zach Bushling, but Zach is also a guy top of our, toward the top of our lineup who showed the ability to, to really know how to hit um, and we, uh, we think he's going to lead us too. We mentioned Reggie Crawford a couple of times and looking at what he did last year, that the, the hitting was ahead of the pitching, or at least that's where his opportunities were as a freshman. Where is he at in terms of being a true two-way guy and getting on the mound a little more? What are the next steps in his development on the mound to make him a, a true two-way star for you guys? Yeah. You know, it was, it was almost like we, uh, we didn't really, we didn't really know how to handle him. Like we, all of a sudden we had an ICBM and, you know, had a small field artillery mindset. You know, we didn't, we didn't know exactly how to use that weapon um, in, in the, in the spring. And I think we were just starting to figure it out. Uh, we need to get him on the mound more often so that he can develop there. And we were able to do that this fall. And he looked very, he looked unhittable at times. I mean, there was, you could put our best hitters up against them and, you know, they'd shake their heads and come back to the dugout and just say, not today. He's too good today. And then, you know, you'd, you'd see him four or five days later and he'd struggle. He might walk a guy and you could still get to him. But those struggles as we progressed in the fall got farther and farther apart. Um, and uh, I think he's going to, you know, I think that the pitching part is going to catch up pretty quickly. He's a gifted athlete, but he's also an extremely hard worker. If there were the, if the lights were on at Elliott ballpark, um, chances were Reggie was hitting under him. I mean, the Fedcos are like that. The Winkles are like that. Reggie was always there. Um, Kieran Deveni is another guy, newcomer catcher who really works hard with Reggie. And I think he's going to be an offensive force for us. He transferred from UMass Lowell 
So, uh, but, Re but Reggie, yeah, I, I, I think the, the pitching has caught up. I, I don't want to say caught up to the bat, but uh, it's pretty electric. I think he hit a couple 97s and 98s this fall. Um, and there's a lot more in there. You know, he's, he, he, he calls himself a thrower. He got closer to being a pitcher in October. Is he also a drone architect, drone cameraman? Yeah. <laughs> he's getting a lot of attention for that. You know, it's like, uh, you know what he is? He's a, he's a baseball rat, too. I mean, you know, he's a swimmer in high school, and I think he's just really fallen in love with the game and getting good at it, you know? And so the drone stuff, it's like it's another excuse to be at the field. You know, I think that's part of it. Um, he just loves that environment. We're very fortunate that we were able to, to practice in, in a great environment for the first time, you know, in, in my tenure here. Um, you know, Elliott Ballpark is just a whole new world to us. Uh, the guys are able to hit until the middle of the night if they want to stay out there on their own. And a lot of them took advantage of that. But yeah, Reggie, he's got some outside interests. And I think that's, you know, that's another reason that makes him a very appealing personality to uh, He's, uh, he's very dynamic and, um, you know, might have the best smile in UConn baseball history, too. He's, he, he just lights up a room. So a lot of, uh, a lot of magnetism, and he's got a very bright future with, uh, you know, his gifts, certainly. You know, those jump out at you. We were walking by the cages in Arizona, and a couple of the Diamondbacks stopped and said, what year is that kid? You know, they're in the, in the tunnels. He said freshman, and they all, you know, their eyes popped out of their head. He just looks different. Um, and you notice the gifts right away, but to see him and how hard he works every day is something that I really have come to appreciate. And I hope a lot of other people do soon. You mentioned, you mentioned the ballpark and, uh, that's one thing that is very exciting about the program, something you've worked for for a long time. Just what has that been like to, you know, see it come to fruition finally? It's truly a dream come true, and it's beyond my wildest dreams in many cases, and just about every case. I mean, it's more than what we even asked for, um, and that's due in large part, I have to thank people who weren't exactly involved with UConn baseball. Uh, Ray Reed, our men's soccer coach, has been an amazing fundraiser on our campus for a long time, along with being a national championship uh, coach both at Southern Connecticut and here at UConn. And he's able to foster a relationship with one of our soccer alums, Tony Rizza, who gave uh, an exorbitant amount of funds um, and leadership to build the Rizza Performance Center, which initially was going to be just a soccer facility support building and expanded to now support five teams. And we're one of those lucky teams uh, so we're going to have five indoor tunnels and we're going to have a training room that we didn't ask for. And we're going to have two team meeting rooms that we didn't ask for a meal room, uh, um, an incredible weight room that we didn't ask for. In addition to the clubhouse that we did request and the offices that we did request, uh, but we wouldn't have gotten there without uh, the help of Tony Rizza and the help of coach Ray Reed. And that's just the support building, the Elliott Ballpark itself. And, and I think it's really cool as a Yukon guy myself, and the son of a Yukon guy, uh, the nephew of a Yukon guy, now the father of a Yukon girl. Uh, I'm, I'm really uh, thrilled that the Rizzo name is going to be on that support building as a former Yukon athlete. And even more thrilled that the Elliott name is going to be on our ballpark in perpetuity. 
and that they both played here. They both competed. Doug Elliott was an MVP for us in 1982 and a, and a captain. And his son, Dougie, played for me um, and was also the MVP of the 2011 team um, in which on that team, I think we had 11 or 12 guys drafted off of in that year alone, uh, along with George Springer, Matt Barnes and, and Nick Ahmed. Uh, so he was the guy voted voted MVP by his teammates that year as the starting catcher. He got a chance to play a little professional baseball, too. And uh, I, I think it's so awesome that their name is their names are going to be on those facilities. There aren't many facilities in the country where, you know, the guys that once played in those uniforms, they put their names on, on the ballparks or on the stadia. Uh, and I think that's really, really cool. It's a big part of, uh, it's a real prideful point for our university. And, and, and for me, especially just walking in there every day. And then you get to the utility of the facility and it's just beyond my wildest dreams. I mean, we, we probably would have had to cancel at least five or six inner squad slash practices this fall due to uh, wet field conditions, um, you know, darkness uh, that, that doesn't come into play any, any longer with the artificial surface and these amazing lights that we have. So uh, it's a real treat to go out there every day. So between, you know, having a good team on the field, you've got the new ballpark opening up, the, the entire athletic department obviously is also moving back to the big East and, and you uh, being a Yukon guy and having, you know, uh, so much family involved in, in Yukon and, and being a Yukon guy through and through can probably appreciate just how exciting this time is for the university and for your program. And I, I can't imagine just in, in your time there, there's been a, a more exciting time for the program with everything going on and, and with the direction things are going. No, you, you're absolutely right. It's, it's been, um, you know, our, our athletic director, you know, and the leadership here on campus worked very hard uh, to get back into back home to the Big East. And a lot of people have asked me, well, what does this mean for baseball? You know, RPI wise, it's not as strong as the American the league you're leaving. And I look at it very differently in that, um, you know, when we went into the American, we really had to work to to renovate our own house to come up to the um, standards of the neighborhood. You know, and to the neighborhood that we were in was extremely competitive. And now we have a ballpark that would have been competitive in that league and facilities that would have been competitive, um, you know, resources that would, would that would be competitive in that league. And yet we can't be thinking about uh, the state of our, of our neighborhood now moving into the Big East. We have to be thinking about our house again. And so how do we, you know, continue to work on our house to hopefully bring a lot of the Big East along. And there's a lot of good programs in the Big East. I mean, St. John's, Seton Hall, Creighton, uh, Xavier's, you know, built built something really special. And that's taken nothing away from the other programs in the league. There's, there's a lot of strong competitive baseball programs in the Big East Conference. So we're focused on our own house and um, we're very excited about being back. You know, I told our athletic director, David Benedict, you know, he called me in and said, hey, this is going to break. And uh, I want to let you know, you know, and, and uh, we think it's the best thing for the university. And I said, I agree. If it's the best thing for the university, it has to be the best thing for UConn baseball, too. And that's been our mindset. Um, and that's what we're what we're focused on. And I, you know, I told him, I said, I want to I, I want you to experience Jay Wright coming into the Art Hartford XL Center or, or Gamble in that suit on a Tuesday night and seeing how electric the place gets. And that's a big part of of. Uh, of our, our uh, athletic program success, UConn basketball. And that's not gonna change. So um, 
nor should it. And we're, we're, uh, we're very excited to be back home and, and looking forward to mixing it up in, uh, in the Big East Conference. What is it about UConn that, that is so special to you? You know, you've been there a really long time. You, you mentioned all the family connections to, to the place. What is it about stores and about UConn that, that has kept you coming back and, and kept you there? I think it's the people and the ethos of the, of the, uh, of the place. Um, you know, I say this every year, actually tomorrow would be, we're going to break a streak. Um, since I've been the head coach, we, we would have a, uh, fall ending run that would conclude at the top of stores cemetery, stores cemetery. It's the longest and steepest hill on campus. And there's a bunch of them, but that's the longest and steepest. And it overlooks this gorgeous campus now that started in 1881 because Charles and Augustus stores who are buried at the top of that cemetery, which is where we finished that run. Um, they built this place based on uh, making farmers better farmers. It was originally the stores agricultural college in 1881. And to come from those humble beginnings and really in the grand scheme of things as state universities go, we're relatively new especially, you know, in our part of the country, relatively a young school, to see the growth that's happened here, you know, over a relatively short time is just uh, awe-inspiring. And I know that our alumni get a kick out of just coming back and seeing all these new buildings, and so much excitement, so much energy on our campus, even during COVID times. They haven't stopped those cranes, the scaffolding, it's still up, they're still working um, overtime to, to uh, improve what the, the storage brothers built. So I think it's, you know, it's a state that often gets a uh, rap as being a place for second homes, a sense of entitlement, uh, the elite, and yet the university that represents the nutmeg state is about the exact opposite. It's about hard work, making better farmers, better farmers still getting up earlier than everybody else, putting in this blood, sweat, and tears to produce something uh, that can be enjoyed by a lot of people. And it's also the, you know, the Huskies are, we're the, we're the major leagues in Connecticut. You know, we're torn between the Red Sox and Yankees in Connecticut, a couple Mets fans here and there, you know, the, the, the Bruins and the Rangers and the Celtics and the Knicks, um, the Patriots, the Giants. And yet the one thing that everybody can call their own are the Huskies in state. And uh, it's, it's exciting to work at a place like that. And I don't consider it work. It's uh, pure joy. Uh, you mentioned the family connections. Yeah, my dad and my uncle both played in the College World Series in 65. And at every Thanksgiving and Christmas, I get to hear about how I haven't been yet um, in our uniform. So we got to make sure that we get back there and, and not just get there, but win it. And uh, it'll be, it may have been, it, I guess it could be easier to do in other places, but it'll never be as satisfying as doing it in a, in a UConn uniform. So I can't wait for that day and to make that happen. Looking through your your bio, there were a couple of items that that stand out that are a little bit a little bit different than than what you might see with with some other coaches. And uh, as someone myself who uh, works in baseball but has a political science degree, uh, one of them that stood out to me was that your first job out of school was working as a fundraiser for longtime Iowa Senator Tom Harkin. And I'm curious what that job was like, uh, what attracted you to that, that world, and uh, you know, maybe what lessons you're still using today from that first job. <laughs> Great question. Well, it was very rewarding on many levels. On a personal level, I met my wife there. And um, so and 25 years later, we're, we are married and have three kids. And 
Um, she's she's a Des Moines, Iowa native. We got married in Des Moines. Tom Harkin was at the was at the wedding. I'm looking at a United States Senate mug right now. It's a trinket from my days there. Um, but yeah, what I learned, you know, I went down there with a lot of idealism and a good deal of naivete that I was going to change the world and uh, found myself bussing tables and waiting tables, trying to find a job on Capitol Hill. Didn't belong to any party, incidentally, at that time. And it's hard to imagine that that could be the case today and get a job on Capitol Hill in any of those offices. I, I would hope that it could still happen. But uh, given the recent state of affairs, I, I don't know if it could. Um, but uh, took a lot from that job. Really, I was a fundraiser and it was about relationships. And um, I've never stopped being a fundraiser. Um, you know, we, we still have to do that every day. It's like raking leaves. You're, you're never, ever done. Um, you got to keep, keep at it. Just like recruiting, you got to keep at it. You got to do it every day. Uh, so I learned a lot about just the mechanics of fundraising and follow-up and, and, um, um, and, and relationships and how, how that's, you know, absolutely vital. But I also, during my time down there, you know, I saw the sausage being made, um, and it didn't taste that good after you see the process, um, of what goes on, you know, every day on Capitol Hill. And so, you know, I, I, um, I wound up going into the family business of coaching and uh, haven't looked back, but I do, you know, certainly have fond memories of, of, uh, of, you know, raising money for Tom Harkin, who's a great man. Um, so no regrets at all. Just, uh, I think I, I wasn't quite meant for that and, and have found my, my calling a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit after graduation. It took a couple of years for me to figure out that this is where I belonged and uh, glad that, glad that I did, but I did in the, in the time there, we, we were able to tie together base. I worked for a guy um, for Tom who was a big baseball fanatic named Paul Danino. And uh, we were able to kind of put together a few fundraisers. We did one in George Steinbrenner's box in Yankee Stadium and in Peter Angelos's box at uh, Camden Yard. So I was able to marry politics and baseball to a certain extent while I was down there. That, those were some of the, the most fun days that I had in that job. Was there a time where you thought you might want to go and, you know, try out, you know, go into political office, not just work on the Hill, but to, to be in politics, uh, you know, running things yourself? Uh, yeah, I, 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 I've never wanted to run for, for anything, but um, I think a lot of the skills, you know, I, I did want to, I've always enjoyed writing. And I think the next job in, in DC probably would have uh, gravitated more toward uh, speech writing. And then the more I kind of thought about that, it's like, do I really want to be writing the speeches for somebody else, no matter, you know, how much you may believe in a person, or do I want to be leading in some way myself? And can I have a bigger impact on young people like my father, like my grandfather, um, in doing something uh, a little bit more familiar and something that might come a little bit more naturally? But uh, no, I haven't, haven't thought of running for for office. That's, that's for sure. And especially nowadays, I, I'd uh, probably, instead of running for office, I'd try to run away from office, run away from politics. <laughs> yeah. Under understandable there, given the current climate. Uh, one of the other interesting things in your, in your bio was that you, you spent a lot of time doing baseball clinics in Europe in a few different countries. And um, 
what is that like? Uh, what do you enjoy about doing that? Um, just, um, you know, I I'm fascinated by the idea of kind of bringing baseball along in some of these countries that, that aren't known from that. So I'm a little curious to hear about how that goes. Yeah, you know, it was it was uh, a great experience going over the few times that I did. My kids were young enough and um, was able to kind of escape. I actually brought my wife one of the times, actually twice, I think we made it over there. Um, she just had our last child for one of those trips and couldn't make it. But it was uh, a great experience. I had never traveled abroad. And like baseball has taken me so many places, you know, it was um you know, it was just awesome to, to go to Europe. And when I got over there, it was, it, it's, it's different because, well, it's different in so many ways, but uh, as far as the game goes, there are a lot of passionate people about baseball over there. Um, and, you know, I had the opportunity to go with, with Tom O'Connell from ISG. Um, uh, Jim Jones from ISG. And a lot of a lot of great coaches over those those uh, times, but it was um, interesting because the people that you, there's not a lot of throwing over there. So you know you'd get guys who may have played handball in the past in Europe, but were interested in baseball. Um, you know, and you, but it was the, the guys that you were talking to it was more like a, a club interest, not necessarily as structured as it is over here. Uh, but it didn't make them any less passionate about about the game. I mean, they were uh, a lot of them, you know, had their favorite teams, their American teams. And it's always fun to be around people that want to learn about the game, no matter what language you speak. It's it's universal. The game has its own language. So I got a, I got a lot out of those trips. Um, and it's always good to just teach, too. Um, and when you're teaching, to you know, to people who don't share your language, uh, as their first language, it makes it even more challenging and it has to make you better. So uh, I found it to be challenging, but uh, definitely a worthwhile experience. We've got one more question for you, and it is the toughest question, you know, in this interview, I'm sure. And that is, we ask all of our guests what their favorite sandwich is. Uh, so that is our question to you, Jim Penders. <laughs> what is your favorite sandwich? Oh man, there's so many choices, you know, boy, I'm going to go with something out, out of the box here. And I probably only had it four or five times, but it is just so darn good. It's a sandwich in Philadelphia. Most people think cheesesteak when they think of Philadelphia, there is a roast pork sandwich um, that several places in Philadelphia do. Uh, I've had one at Denick's in the Reading Tim Terminal Market. I've had one at Tony Luke's in the south side of Philly. Had one a few other places. Uh, ro por roast pork, broccoli rabe, and sharp provolone on a great roll. And it melts in your mouth. A lot of garlic, a lot of spices. Um, and uh, yeah, my mouth's watering right now. I'm just talking about it. That does sound delicious and definitely very Philadelphia as well, I would say. Yeah, sounds like you've got a, uh, a road trip stop on your, uh, in your, your schedule now. That, uh, That's right. A little more conducive to that now with given your uh, conference affiliation. Well, that was one of the best things about the move to uh, the Big East. There's nothing against barbecue and grits, but, you know, I'm a Connecticut born and, born and raised guy in uh, Italian food. Uh, was lacking in, um, you know, in Greenville, North Carolina. 
uh, you know, uh, along with some of our other destinations, but in the American, that is. Um, in this league, you know, going to get to go to New York again and Northern Jersey and, and Philly and D.C. and uh, some good mid Midwest spots, too, that we, uh, we enjoy very much. So the Italian food, being able to get a, a, a good bagel uh, on, a few, on a few trips is going to be uh, very comforting, let's say, at least for the pregame um, until we get to the yard and we have to see somebody in the St. John's uniform or the Seton Hall uniform. That's uh, you know, they're they're, they're going to you know lure you in that way, mm -hmm. get you comfortable with the food, and then bam, like, <laughs> the, the Johnnies are, are are down your throats in the first inning. <laughs> That's right. No, it's uh, it, it, it's uh, I'm I'm looking forward to uh, the menus a lot more in the Big East. Well, Coach, we're excited to see what that looks like this year. Uh, it's a it's an exciting group of guys you have there, like, like we talked about. And I think we're all excited to see what the, the new ballpark is like uh, in some game action. So going to be an exciting spring in 2021. And, and we're, uh, we're happy you were able to join us here on the podcast to, to tell us about it. Thanks so much, guys. I really enjoyed it. And, um, you know, good luck to you and stay safe and healthy and uh, happy holidays too. It's not too early to say that now. Absolutely. The same to you, coach. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you to Jim Penders for joining us today on the Baseball America College podcast. Uh, Joe, there was uh, there was a lot going on there. Uh, you know, we covered we covered a lot of subjects: baseball, the ballpark, you know, his his political career. Uh, you know, it's uh, there, there are a lot of different ways for us to take this, but I guess let's start with the idea that this 2021 team can be very exciting. We're not quite sure, as we said many times, what the, the schedule is going to look like. The Big East uh, has an expansive footprint. Various things have been thrown around, um, you know, in, in terms of potential scheduling. Nothing has been decided yet, but the league stretches from, you know, the East Coast all the way to Omaha with Creighton. So, you know, remains to be seen how they're going to, to sort all of that out. But what in whatever fashion they get on the field this spring, I think this UConn team can be very exciting. Yeah, totally agree. And by the way, on the, on the, on the big East, they really kind of are fortunate that the conference stretches all the way to Omaha with Creighton, but they are fortunate that that far Western team is Creighton in Omaha because you can fly directly to Omaha. Like it would be, I feel like it'd be a lot more complicated and difficult if it was a situation where you had to fly to a, a city on the Western edge of the Midwest and then drive an hour and a half to get there. That would just, that would, that would make it a little more, a little more difficult, but you can just fly direct to Omaha from a lot of places or with a quick, with a quick layover and get that done. So that, that I think that really helps the, the big East in that, in that regard, in a COVID situation or in any year, frankly. Um, but I know I agree an exciting team for UConn. Um, not only just, given what we were excited about in 2020, because you can look at the team and, and yes, they had their ups and downs and coach Pinders alluded to that, but there, there were a lot of reasons to be excited about them. I liked what I saw opening weekend. I think you felt the same. Um, but then there's also, I think beyond that, there are reasons to get excited again about things that are new for 2021. Like I really enjoyed hearing him talk glowingly about Reggie Crawford, a guy who burst onto the scene offensively, and the bat was was very much present early on, but but talking about him as a as an impact arm and 
you know, the transition that he's making for, from being a thrower in, in Reggie's own words to, to being a pitcher and being into the high nineties. And I appreciated his honesty about the fact that they just really didn't necessarily do a good job of using him on the mound in 2020. And, and he and coach McDonald, uh, who he's right, does an excellent job with their pitching staff just needs to get him on the mound. They just need to find a way to make it happen. And um, so I, I really appreciated that honesty, but that, that's a reason for excitement there. I mean, UConn's had a lot of really, really good pitching staffs and they've had some big time arms through the years. Um, but given that it's a Northeastern program, even if it was playing in a, in a league like the American that is not Northeastern by definition, they don't always have those kinds of big time arms. Um, sometimes they get it done with a bunch of pitchability guys, or they might have an arm on the back end. And it's other than that, a bunch of pitchability guys. So having a guy like a Reggie Crawford, I think changes the complexion a little bit of what we can expect from them from a, from a pitching standpoint. In addition to, they do, by the way, have a lot of really good pitchability guys who have been really successful there uh, for a long time. So I think um, there's a lot to like there. And offensively, I, I think it's a pretty physical group when you talk about not just Reggie Crawford, but um, you know, the Fed Coes and, and Chris Winkle and Eric Stock. It's, it's, it's a really mature group. You know, I, we talked about TCU a couple weeks ago, having a grown up lineup. And, and I think UConn is, is similar in that way. They're not as old as TCU, um, but it's, it's a pretty grown up lineup. I think they've got some, some punch in their lineup that it, that it feels to me without looking at year by year stats here in front of me, it, it feels to me like they, they haven't had a ton of punch in recent years. And it feels like this group might be able to hit with a little more power than they've had in the past. And, and obviously again, not to harp on it, but being a cold weather program, you know, hitting, hitting for power is not always going to be their bag, especially early in the year. It's a little chilly. The air is a little bit tough to cut through. So, um, but this group, I think is a group that can win some, some games like that. And it's going to be a fun American. We, we've talked about this before with regards to, to UCF. And of course, East Carolina is in that mix. Houston, I think is going to be an improved bunch. Um, you know, Tulane was really good last year. So it's going to be a fun American. And of course, with UConn out of that mix, it takes one piece out of that. And I say, I say all that to say, I would have really liked to have seen what UConn, as excited as I am to have UConn back in the Big East, I would have really, really excited to see what they can do with the American. So I think it would have been a really fun conference race. And Again, I, I want to, you know, say I, I am excited to have UConn back in the Big East. That does feel like home for them. But man, I think this group would have been right up there with with any of those other teams that we've talked about being at the top of the American in, in 2021. I, I think that's fair, but I I'm very bullish on what the Big East can be going forward. We talked a bit there about, you know, the you know, Jim Penders alluded to the concern that some people have about RPI and what that'll mean in terms of, you know, can they get at large bids out of the Big East? And, you know, we'll just have to wait and see on all of that. But when you look at a conference that has UConn, St. John's, Xavier, and Creighton, those are four strong, consistent programs. And then, you know, Butler has made strides in recent years. Villanova sure looked like they had taken a step forward in 2020. Yeah, it was very early, but just what they were able to do at Arizona State on opening weekend alone, you know, let alone what, what else they had accomplished uh, within the season. And now, you know, Georgetown makes a move uh, in terms of coaching and hires Edwin Thompson, who had turned around, you know, a, a program at Eastern Kentucky that hadn't really been doing anything in the OVC before he got there. Now, can he make a similar, uh, you know, move 
at Georgetown. And, you know, the, the, I'm, I believe in the big East and its future, uh, as, as a baseball conference. So, you know, the idea that UConn won't be able to build an RPI or whatever to, to get in as an at large, I understand where that's coming from, but I think it's misguided. And I, I think that it's just going to take a little bit of an adjustment from what they do in a non-conference setting to maybe bolster it a little bit. But I, I, I don't think that they're going into a conference that, you know, is non-competitive in, in any way or, or that, that, you know, is going to hold them back significantly. I mean, we've seen St. John's get out large bids. You know, Creighton has been in, you know, borderline in the hosting mix to the point where like it's been talked about, like what, what would a regional in TD Ameritrade be like? And, you know, I, so I, I just feel like the, the Big East is not, it's not the problem here. And, you know, it's going to be up to UConn to do what St. John's and Creighton especially have done to build RPIs within that conference, but I see no reason why they won't be able to and why they can't continue, you know, some of the upward momentum that they have had as a program within the American now that they are back in the Big East. Yeah, I I would tend to agree. I I think of it this way, that UConn, not just historically, but in recent years, has had teams that were two seeds in regionals and had had things broken a little bit differently, could have maybe gotten into the hosting mix. And if you're that good, the Big East is not going to hold you back. It's certainly not going to be an anchor on you. And if you're more of an at-large, fringy kind of team, you brought it up. I mean, we've seen St. John's teams that we knew were good, and the numbers were kind of borderline, get into the field. Now, that's a moving target, and you don't want to bank on that, that, hey, we're a Big East program. We're dealing with you know, playing the first however many weeks on the road and the cold weather and we were at a little bit of a disadvantage and you don't want to bank on that kind of stuff, but we've seen that happen with, with St. John's and I'm sure there are examples of others in recent years. So I'm with you. I don't, I don't think it really holds, holds UConn back and, and Pinders and his staff do a good job with their schedule. They, they, when they need to put to, when I feel like when they need to put together a schedule, that's a little bit tougher. They've done that in the past. Their 2019 schedule was, was, was a good one. Um, some years is a little bit softer than others, but they're, they're clearly not a program that has rested on their laurels from a scheduling standpoint, even when they were in the American and knew they were going to get quality games in conference, they would still go out there at least once in non-conference and challenge themselves. And I think they're smart enough to kind of see what's in front of them. And and let's say the big East doesn't turn out to maybe necessarily be as strong as, as they would hope or anticipate. I think, I think they'll, do a good job of offsetting that with some games in the non-conference once schedules, of course, get back to looking a little more normal than I presume they will look in 2021. So I think you're right. Largely, I don't think that being in the Big East is, is too big of a detriment. And I think what they gain from being in the Big East in terms of not just it feeling like home, but uh, saving money on travel, giving the kids a break from travel. Uh, you know, I talked to Jim Penders for a story on the Big East earlier in the offseason during the summer. And he talked about just how tough that travel schedule was when you're, you're in the airport, you know, just about every you're you're in the airport for every conference weekend. And for a lot of your non-conference weekends, and and those kids are are just, um, they're spread pretty thin because it's not just being a student and playing baseball. It's spending a lot of time on the weekend, sitting in an airport, sitting on airplanes, getting back to campus late, all of that kind of stuff. And and a lot of that gets eliminated, not all of it, but a lot of it gets eliminated being in the big East. So I think, what they've gained from being in the big East outweighs any sort of drawback of maybe not getting 
quite as many quality games in conference play. So a lot to look forward to at UConn. You heard about the ballpark. You heard about the team. Um, I'm excited to see where they go. I, I think that, you know, when you look at them and Boston College, um, you know, we, we talked with Mike Gambino on the podcast a few weeks ago. I, I think it has the potential to be a very interesting year in the Northeast. Uh, you can throw in a, a school like Northeastern into that as well. And, um, you know, they're, of course, going to be more beyond that. But, you know, if you just look at kind of the, the big the, the bigger programs up in that part of the country, they look pretty good this year. And, you know, so I'm hopeful that we're able to, uh, to see them, them test themselves and, um, you know, get out there and, and, and compete and see where it goes from there. But I, I think it can be an exciting year uh, for the, the Northeast in, in college baseball in 2021. All right, Joe, I mentioned before that, you know, we had many reasons to be thankful for as college baseball fans and, and for the sport overall. You and I this week put together 25 reasons for college baseball and, and its fans to be thankful. Um, it's been obviously a very challenging year, uh, but even even amid such a challenging year, I mean, I, we, we were able to pretty easily put together 25 reasons to be thankful, which in I mean, if you put a slightly different spin on them, it's, I, I guess, 25 reasons to be optimistic, uh, you know, a, a about college baseball and, and, and as college baseball fans. Yeah, no doubt. It was not not a tough list to put together, honestly. And, we, you know, we probably could have we would have had to get a little more abstract. We probably could have gone to 50 or 75 or whatever number we needed to to get to, honestly, because there are no shortage of, of things to be thankful for, optimistic about, looking forward to all of all of those things. And there's some really big picture stuff on here at the top that I think people won't be surprised to see that just having a 2021 season in some form, you know, getting back to playing the College World Series in Omaha after what will end up being about a two-year, you know, two years since the last game in the CWS gets played. Uh, more talented rosters. Now that cuts both ways, obviously from a player standpoint, I'm, I'm disappointed that opportunities got taken away from good college players and high school prospects that would have and should have started pro careers that, that, that didn't get to do that because the draft was shortened. So at the same time, though, as a college baseball fan, I am excited to see what that looks like in, in that form. Um, but there are also some little more individualized items here that I, that I kind of enjoyed. One that, that, that I put on here that I had not really considered too much. I, I had heard the news on this, but hadn't really considered what it means in the big picture. And that's more automatic bids going to regular season champs. And, and look, I'm a big conference tournament guy. Like I, I think they're fun. I like the low and mid-major conference tournaments because there's just something about the energy and desperation about a one bid league conference tournament, especially in those leagues that don't have a juggernaut. It's one thing if you have kind of a juggernaut that, that you think is, is the odds on favor. But in those leagues where it's a free-for-all, there's just this desperation in the air that is uh, really exciting. And so I love that. But on the other hand, I can appreciate the fact that, look, I mean, just look at a team like Bryant with how dominant they've been in the, in the NEC by and large for the last, you know, better part of a decade now. And they haven't had as many regional appearances as you would think because they've been upset in the conference tournament. Few would doubt they've been the best 
program in that conference over that time, but it just hasn't always expressed itself in terms of postseason appearances. Well, crowning a regular season champ and giving that team your auto bid eliminates that. And not every conference, maybe not even most, have switched to awarding the automatic bid to regular season champs. Some more of them have. And I think while I will miss some of the madness of conference tournaments, I am excited for it to be, for that to make a better NCAA tournament field because you've got more talented, more competitive teams. I'm also happy for those coaches and players to have a full season worth of results pay off in that way. So I think that's, that's a pretty cool deal for, for at least 2021. And I suspect some of that will carry over into future years and we'll have this be the case into the future a little bit more. So I'll turn it back over to you to kind of uh, pick, pick a few things out here. Cause I could really go throughout this, this in, in, entire list here, you know, especially with some of the program specific stuff, you, you mentioned Boston college, you know, long beach States one. That's a cool story. Excited to see where that goes, but, but I could certainly go up and down this entire list and, and talk a ton about each of these items just because, um, it is an exciting time to start to get excited about college baseball again. Yeah. I mean, there's uh, there's a lot to hear. Number one is the 2021 season itself. Um, you know, we're, we're bullish on that. We're excited for that. You know, just having that and, uh, you know, a return to the college world series in Omaha will, uh, you know, will definitely be huge highlights. I think for, for everyone in the game, I uh, I wanted to know just the resiliency of the players. You know, they've been through an incredible amount this year. They had their season halted as abruptly as possible. You had, you know, guys pulling stuff off buses. You had buses turning around. You had, you know, I don't even know, you know, Miami and Penn State playing that last game and then finding out once that game ends that you're not playing anymore this year. And then you go through, you know, a very uncertain summer. I think a lot of people, myself included, when the season was shut down, thought, well, okay, uh, I guess summer ball is what's next. Well, summer ball kind of was what's next, but it also wasn't what anyone thought it would be, what they had planned it to be. And they, they got through that. They've worked through, you know, stringent protocols to get back on the field this fall. In some places, you know, that's been harder than in others. And, you know, through it all, the, the players are out there working to get better by and large. And, you know, I, you hear from coaches about the ways in which their players have gotten better. And, and you hear from the players themselves about what they had to do you know, to get better. And, you know, it's hard not to be, I guess, inspired by, you know, just their dedication to that and their will and desire to keep working no matter what the obstacles they've, they've been facing. It would have been pretty easy for guys to get down on themselves. And I'm sure some did, you know, but, you know, they've worked through it. They, they've, you know, worked through the what what hopefully is the most challenging year of of their lives, and and continued to you know go out and, and find ways to improve as players and and everything. So I I think that has been really great to see and to hear about. And then I also you know we we talked with Tom Walter and, and Kevin Jordan on this podcast, but I, I think that you know what they're doing with their organization, get in the game, is worth mentioning again here. Um, you know, as is the ongoing work of the ABCA diversity committee, especially as, you know, we've gone through the reckoning 
that the summer presented and beyond uh, in terms of racial justice and, and racism in this country to, to have people working on that in the game and just in the college baseball universe as a whole. I, I, I think that that has uh, been great to see as well. And then uh, Bowling Green getting reinstated after getting cut. You know, it's uh, it's a little bittersweet that it had to happen that way. But, you know, here's a program that thought it wasn't going to exist that, that your donors and alumni and fans of Bowling Green baseball were able to find a way to reverse that decision, to raise enough money to, to get the school to reverse that decision. And the Falcons program, uh, you know, continues today. I, uh, I also wanted to, to mention this as I throw it back to you, Joe. I put this on the list. You didn't come up with this. Uh, and that's a huge role reversal, but college baseball being available to watch online, you know, I think, uh, I think we all appreciated that, that this spring. Yeah, man. Yeah. I saw that on the list and I, I couldn't believe I hadn't, hadn't thought about it, but, but you're right. I mean, not just in the springtime. I mean, there's obviously we've gotten to a point now where just, I mean, almost no matter what school you're a fan of, you're going to be able to see a pretty decent portion of that team's games online. Now I know there are exceptions to that. And I sincerely apologize if you are a fan of one of those programs, because I feel your pain. However, for, for most of the country, you get to see all or most of your team's games online, certainly in the major conferences. And that's come a long way, but also, you know, I find something on YouTube at least once a week uh, that I hadn't seen before from a college baseball standpoint. And um, now I don't, uh, I don't get to watch as much of that as I would like, just because it's one of those things that sounds great in, in theory, like, Oh, I found this, this cool college game on, on YouTube. I'll, I'll bookmark it and I'll come back to it. And it's like, you know, even in, even in pandemic times when our lives have been more homebound than ever, um, it's still a struggle to kind of, you know, be motivated to do that kind of thing and go back and watch an older game for a few hours and, and even in the background. So I, I, I would like to be better about that when I actually find things, but, but also the false scrimmages, you know, I, I wrote about at the beginning of the fall, the fact that Siena was putting its fall scrimmages on online. And I thought that was so unique and so, um, such a, a neat idea that a lot of other teams hadn't, hardly anyone had really tapped into. And I just thought it was such an obvious thing to do. And little did I know, uh, certainly with some of the production quality we've seen in some of the fall scrimmages that have been out there, there were certainly a lot of teams that were at the time I was writing that were already planning to schedule their fall workouts and they just, they hadn't started yet. So they hadn't had that opportunity yet, but there was just an absolute boom in the number of fall world series games that were streamed uh, in some form or fashion, whether that was actually out on ESPN plus, or if it was just on the team's Twitter page or on their athletic department website or what have you, they were just, they were seemingly everywhere. It was almost impossible to keep up with, with who was doing what. So that was, really cool. And, and perhaps that, you know, some of that in the case of a program like Arkansas, for example, they draw a ton of fans out typically to their, their fall world series games. And they weren't able to do that this year. So in some respects, that was just kind of a natural thing to do. So it'll be interesting to see if how much that carries over, not just for those programs, but in general into upcoming years when there is the opportunity for fans to, to come back through. So we'll just, we'll have to see. One final thing on this list is I would urge college baseball fans to, if there's any year when we should really appreciate the players we have in college baseball, it's this year, just given what everyone has been through. 
in 2020, but, but I would urge you to take a step back and appreciate a player like Kumar Rocker. Um, I understand as an NFL, as an SEC fan, if you're a fan of a, another uh, SEC program, it might be a tough thing to do. And you really kind of wish maybe Kumar Rocker wasn't in college baseball anymore, but, but that's a guy who is not only arguably the best pitcher in college baseball. Uh, he's a famous guy and college baseball doesn't often get that level of fame. Certainly people knew who Adley Rutschman was, especially as the draft got closer. And it was kind of apparent that Adley Rutschman was going to be the top player selected, but Kumar Rocker's on a different level. Um, you know, especially with what he did against Duke, he really kind of gained a level of, of notoriety there. Uh, he was pretty famous as a, as a high school player. So that goes into it as well, but, but college baseball players that have his particular cross section of, of fame and, and, um, name recognition and skill level, uh, and playing on a, on a team that, that could be a national title contender. Uh, those players don't come along very often in college baseball. And so I think it's important that we really take a minute to uh, smell the roses, if you will, and, and appreciate the players we have. And that also applies a little bit to Kevin Abel. I mean, he was such a, a rising star in the sport in 2018 and then injuries derailed him. And now he's going to get a shot to do, to have one more big season on, on his way out of Oregon state. And so um, I, I would urge all of us to kind of just take a minute to appreciate what we have because college baseball in general, the players are so transient because they're only there for four or five at, at most years, typically and they're gone. So we already have to deal with this, but now, you know, having a season canceled in 2020, I think it has made that even more stark. So I think it's important to, to take a minute uh, to appreciate what we have while we have it. Absolutely. So you can check the, all of that out over at baseballamerica.com. Plenty more to read. Our fall question series continues this week uh, with a few more programs. Hopefully Florida state is online by the time you're reading this. Uh, it should be if I, uh, if I if I'm doing my job right. Um, and if you're into the professional prospects, as I've mentioned before, the uh, top tens are rolling out online in advance of our prospect handbook, which you can order pre-order rather at baseballamerica.com. Uh, full 30, full top 30s for each of the 30 major league teams. Uh, so I would urge you to check that out if you are if you are so inclined. You can follow us on Twitter. I am at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. And we will be back here uh, with another edition of the Baseball America College podcast next week as uh, you know we get ever closer to opening day and the 2021 college baseball season. Again, we are continuing uh, with the week, week, weekly podcast throughout the off season. And we greatly appreciate everyone who has subscribed and, and who is continuing uh, to listen along through the, this uh, extended, extended college baseball off season. So hopefully everyone gets a chance uh, to take a break this, uh, this week to remember what they're thankful for and, you know, just be, be with family, whether that's in person or on a zoom call. However, everyone is, is doing that this year. We, we appreciate you guys taking the time to listen to this podcast. So thank you guys for listening. Thank you to UConn coach Jim Penders for joining us here. Thank you to Rapsodo for their continued uh, sponsorship of the Baseball America College podcast. Remember, you can check out uh, the Rapsodo national database at rapsodo.com 
slash national database. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll see you next time on the Baseball America College Podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.